And the Old Testament reading is from Genesis 35, 1 to 15. And it's found on page 29 of your pew Bible. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar that, there to God who appeared to you when, he, when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the Tenerbeth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called his name Elon Bikuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came upon Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and the king shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Thanks be to God. One and Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning. And if you've been with us through this Jacob series, um, something might strike, strike you in this particular passage, and it's that nothing terrible seems to happen. Um, if you've traveled with us through the life of, of Jacob, I mean, in many ways, it's been tragedy after tragedy, bad event after bad event, and something different is, is happening here. But as we'll see, there is still a tragedy at hand, and there still is an enemy that needs to be confronted and defeated. So in light of those truths, before we turn to this passage, let us turn to God in prayer. 
God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Jacob. One thing that we've learned as a church, as we've, we've studied Jacob, is your deep grace that you lavish upon us. Because, Father, if there's room for the table, there's room at the table for Jacob, there's, there's room at the table for each of us that you give, yourselves to us, give, give yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Despite our sin, despite the things that we do, because of your great and gracious love for us. And Father, as we look at this text, I pray that you would make that truth powerfully clear to us again. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there there are few people in human history that have thought more about human happiness than the ancient African bishop, Augustine. And Augustine argues that at bottom, as, as humans, all of us want happiness, and all of us do the things that we do because in some way, shape, or form, we believe that those actions will bring us happiness. And actually, this, this alliance, this, this resonates with quite a bit of contemporary research. Much of this research actually helps to support Augustine's thoughts on happiness. For instance, the, the recent and popular book, Indistractable, which is a book about productivity, the authors actually go on to draw from much recent work in psychology to help readers understand how their mind works. In particular, they draw special attention to the fact that we as humans, we're always restless, we're always struggling with contentment, we're always wishing that we had more. For humans, happiness or or how we imagine happiness to be is is always slipping through our fingers. The authors of that book quote one study who say, new goals continually capture one's attention. One constantly strives to be happy without realizing that in the long run, such efforts are futile. Studies show that the things that we think will make us happy, they don't. Once we finally get those things, they actually end up letting us down. And this is true even for very rare, very big things. For example, people who win the lottery, well, very soon afterwards, they find themselves at the very same level of happiness or lack thereof that they were at before winning the lottery. And the same is true for romantic love, for professional success, even possessions, big possessions like cars and and houses. At first, we experience a rush of excitement, but then statistically speaking, we're actually back to where we were before. And we might expect the authors of this book to to label this a bad thing, to diagnose it as a problem. We might expect them to say something like, so the moral is we need to learn to be satisfied with what we have. But instead, the authors argue that our inability as humans to be satisfied, our, our penchant for continually striving, well, that actually makes humans the special kinds of creatures that humans are. 
Looking at recent research, they write, it's good to know that feeling bad isn't actually bad. It's actually what survival of the fittest intended. The problem is this. In the words of a study they reference, if satisfaction and pleasure were, were permanent, there might be little incentive to continue seeking further benefits or advances. If we were fully happy, if we were fully content, if we could stop striving, then maybe we would lay down and let some other species run all over us. But that can't happen because we're never satisfied and the happiness we have is never permanent. And so we're always progressing, always developing, always seeking something new, new cities to live in, new jobs, new romances, new activities for our kids, new houses, new cars, new technology, new subjects of study, new ways to be happy. And if we can be honest with ourselves, when we read about this, it is exhausting. If the default function of being human is this, then we're necessarily restless creatures. We're doomed to seek something that we can never find. We're, we're like explorers that are going out to find a, a unicorn or some other mythical beast. We're out there searching for something, searching for happiness, and happiness doesn't actually exist. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that the case? Can happiness actually be found? Does it exist? Can the human actually find himself or herself satisfied? Well, let's return to Augustine because none of this would have been a surprise to him. He knows that we seek happiness and he knows that we seek it desperately. And he also knows that the very good things of this world will fail to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts and our souls. Augustine knows that we are restless, and Augustine actually knows that it gets much worse. Not only is there nothing in this world that completely, can completely satisfy us, but nothing in this world can be had without loss. Augustine says that true happiness re requires that the source of our happiness, whatever it is that makes us happy, that thing cannot be lost. Because if we can lose it, well, then the fear of losing it will continually keep us from full happiness. We can't rest secure in that happiness. We're always fearful. We're always anxious that it will be taken away, that we're going to lose it. And in this world, bodies decay, careers end, Health fades, families struggle, and all of us die. Nothing in this world is free from loss. And in fact, if what we see is all that there is, then death just is the loss of anything that could make us happy. It's even the loss of ourselves. And so if Augustine is right, and if all that we see is what there is, well, then Augustine would tell us that happiness just is not possible. But perhaps there, there is a good that actually can fulfill the deepest desires of our heart, and perhaps that good cannot be lost, not even by death itself. That, at least, is, is Augustine's belief, and as we'll see, this is the truth expressed in the passage as well. 
Because we find three things in this passage. We find the burial of false happiness. We find another burial, the burial of lost happiness. But then at the end, we find a promise, the promise of God, the promise of true happiness. So let's look at each in turn, starting with the burial of false happiness. The passage begins with God coming to Jacob and commanding Jacob to return to Bethel. And if you remember, Bethel is where God met Jacob in a dream when Jacob was alone and he was fleeing from the murderous rage of his brother Esau. This was a dark night. Jacob was isolated. He was vulnerable. He was exposed to to the weather, to animals, to bandits. And the only thing he had to lay his head on was a stone. Jacob had reached the absolute end of himself. His illusions were shattered. Jacob, up to this point, had depended upon his self-reliance, his cunning self-interest, his calculating intellect. He cheated and he deceived both his brother and his father for his own gain. And where did that leave him? Well, it left him in Bethel, miserable and alone. And so Bethel is a special place for Jacob. It's where God first meets Jacob. Or or we might say it's where Jacob is first ready to meet God. Jacob here has realized that what he's done is not actualizing, is not getting the good life that Jacob intended. And Jacob here alone and by himself in the dark has nothing to do but face this reality. And that's why here in chapter 35 and verse 3, Jacob refers to God as the God who answers me in my day of distress. Or as one commentator puts it, the God who answers me in my time of crisis. Jacob looks back on that night at Bethel as a time of great distress, as a time of great crisis. But it's in this distress and it's in this crisis, it's here that God answers, that God meets Jacob. And Jacob has shown that he cannot live just any way he pleases, that if he will cut against the grain of reality, then he will face the consequences. What Jacob learns is that God is God and he is not. And for fallen humanity, for humanity corrupted by sin, this is a hard truth. What this truth tells us is that we don't have the control over our lives that we think we have. Jacob never meant to end up in the wilderness. He'd actually succeeded at everything he set his mind to, but the happiness for which he hoped is far, far away. He got the best of his brother, and he got the best of his father. He got exactly what he wanted, and it devastated his life. He's alone. He's miserable. And ironically, what we find here is a key paradigm of God's judgment. Speaking of the course of of fallen humanity, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God has given up fallen humanity to follow the lusts, the disordered desires of our hearts so that we come to worship and serve the created things instead of God, the creator himself. Jacob thought, if I just had the birthright, the lion's share of the inheritance and the role as the family leader, then I'd be happy. If I just had the blessing of my father, then I'd be happy, then I'd be joyful, then I'd be okay. But again, Jacob got exactly what he wanted, and now he is 
alone, and now he is miserable. And we, like Jacob, too, seek happiness in the good gifts of this world, but these are lesser goods. They pale in comparison to God himself, and and deep down, if we are honest with ourselves, all of us know this. We desperately seek these things, but deep in our hearts, we know that they cannot bring us the happiness we desire. We've all come across news stories of of persons who have achieved exactly what we ourselves want. They've become known or celebrated or applauded or famous or wealthy, but they still struggle with the same sorrow and, and sadness that all of these things were supposed to heal. And perhaps getting exactly what they wanted and still being unhappy moves them to mock happiness as a, as a cheat, as a fake, as a myth. All of us then, we, we should not be surprised that distraction is a tempting option. And between things like Netflix and and smartphones, we're we're, we're more able to distract ourselves from these hard truths than ever before. As the 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. We're afraid. We're afraid to be alone. We're afraid to be alone with our thoughts and the unsettling truths we might discover. The authors of of Indistractable, for instance, they they recount an experiment that was published in the journal Science. Participants were were given the task of of sitting alone in a room and simply thinking for 15 minutes. However, there there was a device in the room that enabled participants to to zap themselves with with a low-level but still painful electric shock. And this is fascinating, but once in the room, 67% 67% of men and, and 25% of women set to zapping themselves multiple times with this device. And the researchers reflecting on this behavior, they wrote the following. People prefer to do thinking. Oh, sorry. People prefer doing to thinking, even if what they are doing is so unpleasant that they would normally pay to avoid it. The untutored mind doesn't like to be alone with itself. I mean, think about that. Think about this reality. People are alone in a room, and rather than being alone and just thinking for 15 minutes, they would rather get a device and shock themselves multiple times. To again quote Pascal, the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. Can we be alone? Can we spend a dark night by ourselves in Bethel, wrestling with who God really is and who we really are? Can we do that without distractions? Probably not shocking ourselves, but some other kind of distraction on our smartphone or otherwise. Jacob, for all his faults, or we might say in rightly responding to his faults, Jacob does this. He comes to know God as the one who answers him in his crisis, as the one who answers him in his distress. And we ourselves, we we live in a world where sadness is often only treated as an illness, as a result of bad biological functioning. And to be sure, humans are body and soul. The fall has corrupted every part of our being, and our brain chemistry often does not work like it should. 
there's an important place for medically treating that, absolutely. However, we, we can often run the risk of making all of our sad sadness simply a matter of, of biological function. And this is a mistake. Uh, I recently heard an interview with uh, political science professor Jason Blakely, and he asked, the question, he asked questions along the following lines. What if our sadness and sorrow is, is actually cueing us in to reality? What if it's trying to tell us something important? What if our soul is telling us that we are bumping against futility? What if, like Jacob, our sadness is telling us that we are in a dangerous place? Think of yourselves. What thoughts leave you with a heavy heart? What might your sadness be trying to tell you? Where are you experiencing futility in this world? Don't be too quick to overlook this sadness and simply try to silence it. Because our God is the God who meets us in our distress and in our crisis. It's here that we meet him most fully and deeply, and it's here that he answers us most directly, most clearly, oftentimes. And it's by God's mercy that, that God gives us the very good gifts of creation, things like marriage and family, friends, resources, careers. But it's also by his mercy that these things don't satisfy the deep desires of our soul. If God gives us these things, let us receive them, receive them gladly and gratefully and steward them well. But let's not try to make them do what only God can do to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. In fact, it would be cruel for God to let these things satisfy most fully who we are. It would mean that God would need to actually shrink us. If these things could satisfy our souls, then we would not be the dignified creatures that we are. God made us so great that only he himself can satisfy the fullness of our soul. Recall the, the authors of the book Indistractable. They write, It's good to know that feeling bad isn't actually bad. It's exactly what survival of the fittest intended. But, but let's, let's change that in light of, of Scripture. We might say something like this. It's good to know that feeling bad isn't necessarily bad. In many cases, it's exactly what being made for the enjoyment of God himself and not being wholly satisfied with any good gift of creation is all about. Because the idea that we can be wholly happy by the things of creation, well, that's just the basic logic of sin. Sin is making less of ourselves. It's attempting to satisfy ourselves with something less than the infinite God. Sin is a self-imposed shrinking of the human. It's trying to make ourselves small. But God will not let us undo. God will not let us uncreate ourselves. The studies mentioned earlier tell us that each new thing we gain in this world, it doesn't give us the happiness we seek. And this is God's design. But we push back. We push back with sin because we try to make ourselves smaller when only God can satiate our hungry souls. So then there are two basic alternatives. Either we are creatures that can never be satisfied as this notion of survival of the fittest would have it, 
Or we are creatures who can only be satisfied with God, as Christianity would have it. C.S. Lewis famously tells us, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So what does Jacob make his household do before they go to Bethel? Well, he makes them bury their idols, bury their false gods, bury their false sources of happiness, all those things in creation that we try to make into gods. Jacob makes them bury the thought that anything other than God could fulfill them, could lead them, could guide them, could make them truly and fully happy, could fulfill the deepest desires of their hearts. And we too, as the readers of Scripture, are called to this same act of burying, to bury this notion of idolatry. But this is not the only burial that we find in this passage. And it brings us to a second point, the burial of lost happiness. If you remember, Augustine lays out two criteria for happiness. First is that there is a source of happiness so great that actually can fulfill the desires of our soul. And second, that we can't lose that thing. Because if we lose it, well, the fear of losing it will keep us from happiness. And if what we see is all there is, then we will absolutely lose everything. Death will take everything from us, and we will even lose ourselves. And so while not all people will bury their false gods, all persons will have to bury those they know and love, and eventually they themselves will be buried. And here... We come to the burial of Deborah, the burial of Rebecca's nurse. And if you think about it, there's one relation in the life of Jacob that does not suffer significant breakdown, and that's their relationship with his mother. Yet after Jacob flees from Esau, we never again hear about Rebecca. And what this absence, what this silence suggests is that Somewhere along the line during Jacob's 20 years with, with Laban, Rebekah died. But here we're told of the death of Deborah. And it's a detail we don't expect. And so as readers, we should step back and say, why is the text telling us this? Well, Deborah likely joins Jacob's company amidst his return to Canaan. And I believe we are here given this detail of Deborah's death because Deborah is Jacob's last link to his mother, to who she was in this life, to her memory. Perhaps Jacob and Deborah, or sorry, perhaps Jacob and Deborah talked often about Rebekah. And it's perhaps likely that no one else in Jacob's camp has ever even met Rebekah. But with this woman, Jacob could come and talk about his mother. Yet now that Deborah is gone, Rebekah is more fully gone too. There is no one in his camp to share his love and memory of his mother. And so Jacob honors Deborah by making special note of her passing, which is a rare thing in Genesis, and, and offering, performing for her a special burial. Because in this burial, Jacob is not only burying Deborah, he's also, in a sense, burying the memory of his mother. And one day, everyone who knew Rebekah will also 
be gone. One day Jacob too will die. He will be lost by those around him and he himself will lose all the things of this life. Again, we may not bury our false gods, but we all ourselves will be buried. And we get this sense even in God's promise to Jacob because what we have here, it's a wonderful promise. It's actually the promise that's given to Abraham and and Abraham himself is buried at this point. It's the promise of land and it's the promise of, of offspring. But Jacob will die before this promise comes to fulfillment. Jacob will die in the land of Egypt before having become a great nation. And so we have to ask, is is this promise really for Jacob? Won't death keep Jacob from actually receiving it? And even if he lived to see it fulfilled, wouldn't he still lose it by death? Death has taken his mother from him in the death of Deborah in a new way. And now Jacob's own death one day will take the promise of God from him. And so we find another problem of of true happiness. Again, even if we bury our false gods, one day we will have to bury ourselves. And death will strip us of everything. And if it's a happiness that can be lost, then it's not a true happiness. So again, can happiness be found? Well, if we look closer at this passage, we find more. There's something more in this account that makes God's promise to Jacob all the more joyous. And that brings us to our third and final point, the promise of true happiness. Remember in in Genesis 32, we, we find the account of Jacob wrestling with God, and Jacob asks God his name, but God does not answer. He renames Jacob Israel, but God himself does not give his own name. But here, here God does give Jacob his name. I am God Almighty. So why does he do that here and not before? Well, in the wrestling match, if you remember, God is intentionally not prevailing over Jacob. God is gentle. He's training. He's crafting Jacob. He's not crushing them. Jacob is meant to learn that this wrestling match is an act of love meant to form him into the image of Christ. And it's true that even in the most painful of circumstances, Jacob is meant to realize that this is an act of love. Jacob must learn that God is not his enemy, but that God is his great love and joy. But here in the present passage, God does prevail. God is almighty. God reveals himself as almighty. He wants to show Jacob that he is mighty to destroy any enemy that would exalt itself against him, that he is mighty to prevail over any foe, that he is mighty to rescue and defend his people from from any enemy. But then who is the enemy? Who is God prevailing over? Well, it's the great enemy, the great enemy of of death. Again, we should all put away our false idols, our false gods, and give ourselves to the Lord. But even then, we will still suffer death. Like Deborah, we too will be buried like these idols. The false gods have been taken by death, and Deborah too has been taken by death. 
we, all of us, we die because we bear the corruption of, of Adam. We die because we inherit and then enact our own false way of being human. Like Adam before us, we fail to love God and neighbor rightly, and we, in an important sense, live falsely. And like Adam and Deborah before us, we die, and we too will decay in the grave. So then, what is it that we find in this chapter? Well, we find the burial of false gods, the burial of false humans, and death's victory over them both. But what if we changed the formula? What if the true God and the true human died and was buried? What would happen then? Would death remain victorious? Or would God Almighty prevail against this great enemy of humanity? Because years later, this very thing would happen. God the Son would become human, and though he led the true, not the false, but the true human life with perfect love for God and neighbor at every turn, he would suffer the punishment of death that we all deserve. God the Son would take on himself a human soul and a human body, and he would die and be buried. His body and soul would be torn apart at death, and his human soul would descend to Sheol, to the place of the dead. This is not the, the place of torment, but the place reserved for the righteous dead, those who, like Jacob and Deborah, have placed their faith in God's promise, which Christ fulfilled. Thus, Christ descended exactly to where Jacob and Deborah were. And I should note, if, if you're curious about this often neglected, neglected doctrine or line from the Apostles' Creed, I commend to you the book, um, He Descended to the Dead by, by Matthew Emerson. It, it talks about Christ's descent, which is a very important doctrine for the church. And so, according to his human nature, God the Son who is both true God and true humanity, he died, he was buried, and he descended. But this God, this is the God of Jacob, this is God Almighty. He prevailed, he triumphed over death. On the third day, he rose again, body and soul reunited, never to die again, never to suffer death and decay. And in Christ, the true God and the true human were buried, but in Christ, God prevailed over death. And so, St. Paul, echoing the Old Testament promises of the prophets, says in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is the ultimate promise given to Jacob. Because what is the ultimate promised land? Well, it's the promise of a restored creation of all of this world, free from sin and all of its effects. And who are the offspring? Well, the promised offspring are all those who would share faith like Jacob in God's promise. And even now, Jacob and Deborah, they're not truly dead. They're in the presence of God, delighting in Him. They're waiting for God to reunite their souls with resurrected bodies to, be, to, to inhabit a fully restored and perfected cosmos with God. 
Because to be fully human, we have to be both body and soul. And as Christ himself tells us in Matthew 22, when he's speaking to those who are denying the resurrection, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living. Our God is the God of the living, and our God is the great joy of the living. And where does that leave us now? Well, Augustine tells us that in this life, what we have is the hope of happiness. Yes, now, even now, we enjoy God deeply, but in this life, our love for God is never as it should wholly be. But one day after our death, or if we are alive when Christ returns, we will be raised with resurrected bodies and the deepest longings of our hearts will be wholly satisfied in God himself. And this is a happiness that we cannot even begin to imagine. If you have placed your faith in Christ This is absolutely your future. You cannot lose it, and nothing can take it from you. Therefore, in in rightly stewarding this promise, we as Christians, we are called to joy. That's why joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Yes, we will suffer deep sorrow, but there must be a joy deep in our hearts that endures all sadness and all pain. Yes, it is a hope of happiness, but it's still a wonderful taste of that happiness to come. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells us the following, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And this, of course, assumes that the Christian is living with that deep hope of happiness so that others are taking notice and and they can't quite explain the joy and the peace that no sorrow or sadness or lament can extinguish or crush or suffocate. And so, church, do you grasp, do you contemplate, do you long and hope for the great joy that awaits you? Do you know the fullness of life and happiness that Christ Jesus has won for you? And let it even now kindle a mighty, prevailing, and undefeatable happiness within you. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, who is true human and true God, that you conquered death, Lord, so that for the Christian, even now we can take delight in who you are, but we look forward also to a world free of death, a world of a restored creation where we can find the deep longings of our hearts fulfilled in you. Thank you, Lord, that you who are the God who gives rest to our restless hearts. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.